I'm sure that you've probably heard the expression, don't judge a book by its cover, right? If you look up on the screen here, there's a couple of examples of that from our culture. Of course, there's Beauty and the Beast, right? The whole premise of that whole story is that don't judge the beast by who he is because there is actually a gorgeous prince inside, at least that's what the girls say, right? Um, and uh, then, uh, anyone want to know who this other person is? Huh? Susan Boyle, yeah. And uh, she was on, uh, what was it, Britain's Got Talent. And, um, you know, when she got up there, if you ever watched the video, it's almost like everyone's like, you know, <laughs> right. And then they ask, you know, where are you from? And she's like, I'm out from, you know, this, this podunk country little village area. And they're like, okay, you know, let's get through this, you know. And she began to sing. And, um, you know, this, this whole idea of judging a book by its cover is, is basically the idea of, of having a superficial understanding of someone or something simply based on what you can see. And, you know, I think it's important for us to recognize that it is an idiom that is used to describe how we view people, um, in particular how quickly we categorize people. Just think about this. You, you look at someone and you may come to a conclusion about their political position, their social status, um, their their behaviors, their spiritual condition. Um, you, you look at their clothes, you look at their cars, you look at their expressions, you look at their hair, you look at their makeup, you look at their jewelry, um, you look at their homes, their hobbies, their vocations, and you're, you're taking all this in and, and your, your mind processes and you come to a conclusion. I mean, you don't have to think too hard to come to that conclusion. Your, your mind's already doing it. It's already filling in the gaps and you're coming to a place are making a judgment based on what you see. We all do it. When we say don't judge a book by its cover in reference to a person in particular, it actually means this, that people cannot and should not be judged or measured by what they appear like to you at first. And you may have had that experience. You meet someone and you kind of automatically put them in a category. And then over some time, when you actually start to get to know them, you realize, I had it all wrong. I had it completely upside down. Um, it's necessary to know someone and might want to say to read them before you judge them. So if we do judge people only by what we see, we fail to see what is actually true. We fail to see what God sees. We fail to see what is really in their heart. And this is an idea that is rooted in Scripture. In the Old Testament, um, it kind of looks like this. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God what? Looks on the heart. It's the same thing. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man, man judges by what he sees, but it's God that is actually looking on the heart. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the religious Jews in our text here, do not judge by appearances, by ju but judge with right judgment. Now, the fact that these truths are in Scripture should caution us that we tend to drift sinfully into the habit of judging by appearances. We struggle with that. It's a reality. But there's a, there's a caution here I want to make sure that we are aware of. The caution basically is this. In our American culture, let's say in our American Christian culture, um, there's almost this attitude that we should not judge or that 
to judge is a sin. You heard that before? Don't people say that? Um, And I would just want to make sure that we understand that actually God's word tells us that as Christians that we are to judge. We have a responsibility to judge. But just like Jesus says here, our judgment should be with the right judgment. In other words, there should be a standard of measurement that that judgment comes from. Turn your Bibles here to Matthew chapter 7. I just want to highlight this for you um, because, you know, this, this subject comes up a lot. Matthew chapter 7. And, and I want you to notice what it says. Here's Jesus speaking. And this is what happens. Judge not that you be not judged. See, the Bible says and Jesus says you shouldn't judge. Okay, you're right. He does say it, does he not? It's there. But we study Scripture by studying the context, right? What is he actually getting at? What is he actually saying to those people? Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, so whatever measuring stick that you use to judge someone else is the same measuring stick you ought to measure yourself with, right? Okay? So let's continue on. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Ah, okay, so if you're going to judge, recognize that if you're trying to point something out in that person's life, you probably have this big, huge plank, all right, that's going to be pointing out there. Yesterday, I was helping Alex uh, do stuff in his house, in his backyard, moving all this junk and all that kind of stuff, and we're carrying these big planks. Well, we took down a whole bunch of sheds and stuff like that, all right? And it wasn't all his junk. It was someone else's junk, although some of it was his junk, all right? Um, But it's no longer his junk because we've gotten rid of it, I think. It's anyway, it's somewhere. But there are these huge planks, and you've got to be careful where you walk. And listen, with this whole idea of judging, we must be careful how we go about it, okay? Because the reality is we may have this big plank in our own eye that we can't even see. Now, let's continue on. All right? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, do you get what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, you are to judge. But as you judge, you must make sure that the measurement that you use to judge someone else is the same measurement you're using for yourself and that you do it on yourself first. Once you have truly looked at yourself in the mirror and seen yourself as God wants you to be seen as best you can at that moment, then you have freedom to use that measuring stick with someone else. Now, the question now is what do we mean by judge, right? Now, it's not like this, judge, I'm going to come and get you and judge you. and you, the, I'm going to use my big, heavy, my, my ESV study Bible, large print edition, okay, which is, is, you know, you build houses with those things, all right? No, that, the idea here is that we are God's people living together, interacting with one another, and there are times when, when, when sin is present and we, we see it or we experience it with someone else that we need to go and approach that person and have our relationship restored, right? In order to do that, we need to be able to to put ourselves under the umbrella and the teaching and the counsel of God's word. And so we go with an attitude of humility, but we go with also the the, the standard of God's word being the measurement 
by which we actually exercise that judgment. I see it's important because it's thrown out there, you know, you shouldn't judge. Well, what do you mean by that? I'm not condemning. To judge means to evaluate. To judge actually means to discern, all right? And when you discern, when you see something clearly for what it is, then you can know what to do. And so it is loving for Christian brothers and sisters to get together and to discern and even to honestly talk about their struggles and for another brother or sister on the situation to say, you know what, that is a sin. Let me, let, let's see what God's word has to say. Let me help you with that. That's, that's, that's all that, that's taking place, okay? So it's important then to notice that when we talk about judging a book by its cover, um, it's okay to say um, that we are to judge. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Jesus says here, do not judge by appearance, but judge with the right judgment. So there is a way to do that. You with me there? All right, very good. Now, um, it, is, it is important then for us to recognize here that uh, what Jesus, though, is talking about in John 7 um, is specifically about how men, in particular how the Jews and the people that are there, are judging him. That's the point of his statement here. How man comes to conclusions about who Jesus is and what he claims to do for us. In particular, how the Jews are measuring or considering his claims to be the Messiah. And we've seen him, you know, share those claims and, and the people respond to those claims. Now, remember, Jesus is back in Jerusalem now. It's the Feast of Booths. And he was on a secret mission last week. And that secret mission got him to the place where he went, uh, not the way that his brothers wanted him to go, but he went independently of them, kind of uh, um, with, without the fanfare, into Jerusalem he shows up at the temple, and what does he begin doing? Boom, begins teaching. He now is coming public, so to speak, in the context of hostility, because we're already told that they want to arrest him. In fact, they want to kill him. And there's that buzz that's going around um, Jerusalem about that. And so that, that whole context, that whole atmosphere, um, then, is this whole context into which Jesus goes into, and they are coming to conclusions about him. They are judging him by certain standards. Now, how do we judge by appearance? Here's some, here's some thoughts I think that, that I came to anyway. When, we, when the standard measuring tool is, first of all, what we think. In other words, just our mind is coming to a conclusion. We're just saying, well, this is what I think. You know, whatever bounces in my head, that's the, that's the measurement, that's the standard that I'm coming to, okay? We judge by appearances simply by, by resting on what we think. Um, uh, how, again, how do people judge by appearances? In particular, I'm thinking here about, uh, about who Jesus is, okay? By simply what we think. Secondly, by what tradition has taught us, all right? I mean, we, people have a view of Christ based on what tradition has taught them. Depending on what tradition they grew up with, he's a good man, you know, He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, you know, he's a prophet. He's, you know, he's a good example. All, all those are just different traditions and nuances that you could add in there that, that formulate and fashion our thinking of who Jesus is. Um, we judge him by appearances when we, we choose selective attributes of God. That happens a lot, right? We've talked about that. People only want to choose certain attributes of who God is. He's love, he's compassion, he's kindness, and all that kind of stuff. And so their, their view, their perception of who Jesus is, is limited to those, those attributes that, that seem to be positive. 
not necessarily the ones that in man's eyes would be negative. Um, we, we judge by appearances um, when the standard uh, or that measuring tool is a basic introduction uh, to God um, that might be faulty. In other words, it's just kind of a very surface level understanding. Okay, yes, he is the son of God, but what else about him? And sometimes if, we, if we're left at the elementary place, we, we fill it in with other things that may not necessarily be true. Scripture is not what is feeding people's minds, but it's just simply their ideas and this basic elementary understanding of who Jesus is. So John here is saying to us, listen, as we come to this text, as we come to this passage, he wants to introduce us to Jesus. He wants to teach us more about Jesus. He wants to continue examining Jesus so that ultimately those who are reading this gospel will believe and have life, eternal life, abundant life. Remember, the gospel of John is just, is just chock full of evidence about who Jesus is, and it's, it's the spiral growing wealth of understanding of who Jesus is. So he's moving from this superficial understanding of who Jesus is, which is so evident among the crowds, and he's driving us now, though he's driving the reader to say, now listen, take a closer look. Listen to what he has to say. So we, we come now to verse 14, the beginning of this text, kind of sets the stage a little bit about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. We started the, right before the feast, now it's the middle of the feast, and we're going to finish next week on the last day of the feast. So here we have this section, verses 14 through 36, which would be this middle of the feast um, arena. And in our text today, here's, here's the basic premise of our, of our time this morning. In our text today, we come face to face with three questions that will take us deeper in our understanding of Christ so that we will believe and have life. So three questions that will take us deeper in our understanding of Christ. Now these questions will help us judge him a little more between the covers of the book. We don't want to just settle for the covers. We want, we want to actually get into the meat of what's going on. Okay? These questions will also take the superficial understanding of Jesus and, and urge us and whoever is reading this gospel to consider the deeper implications. And so the three questions are basically this. Um, where did you get your education? Um, where did you come from? Where ultimately are you going? A question about your education, a question about origin, a question about destiny. Okay, those are the three questions that this text is going to pose and we're going to find some answers to. And this, this is all helping us formulate a better understanding of who Jesus is. Now, in those questions, there are things that are directly applicable, applicable to us that we are going to identify, but hopefully also understanding who Christ is is going to fashion and shape us for his glory. So let's just pause and pray right now. Lord, um, I just would ask, Lord, for your help today. We are we are in John's gospel, and Lord, you are declaring yourself over and over and over again. Would you allow us, Lord, just to, to feel the freshness of this text rather than to, to feel bogged down in it? Allow, allow me as your messenger to make things clear, or would you allow us to see your son, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up and portrayed for us and being on display for us today so that we can see him in his glory Allow us, Lord, to connect with the things that you want to drive home in our hearts, Lord. Sometimes that might be things that, that I say. It might be things, Lord, that, that you do in people's hearts, that your Holy Spirit is communicating by implication of what's being talked about here. 
Lord, we want to give you this time, and we want to glorify you in it, Lord. Help us today in your name. Amen. All right. So I, I think it's compelling, just as we, before we actually get into these questions, to consider a little bit of philosophy. I'm, I'm not going to get heavy into it, but just think about it. So you've been to college. You, I'm sure you know this. If you haven't, you've probably heard this. But there's basically four questions that philosophy is asking, right? Where did I come from? Right? Um, where am I going? What am I doing here? And what is the purpose of life? Oftentimes, those last two can be coupled as one, as one question. Say three major all right, statements. But where did I come from? Where am I going? Um, you know, what's, what's my purpose? What am I doing here? I think it's interesting because as we, as we look at these questions here, there is the sense in which these questions are being asked about Jesus. Where did he come from? That's a question about his origin. Where, where is he going? That's a question about his destiny. You know, he, he's here in the temple teaching. And, and, and they're saying, where did you get your education? What, what are you doing? How do you get the, the, the authority? How do you get the, this, this responsibility? How, why is it you're doing what you're doing? Very interesting that this, these, these questions are being asked here and answered by this text. All right, so let's look at the first question, a question about education. A question about education. Notice now, as we look at the, the first paragraph here, that the word marveled is used twice to describe the response of the Jews, first of all, at his teaching, secondly, about his work. And um, his work, of course, is what he did back in chapter 5, last time he was in Jerusalem, when he healed that, that um, lame man at the pool of Bethesda. That's what it's referring back to, Okay. Now, it's the Greek word thaumadzo, which simply means to be astonished or to be amazed. It's a word that describes um, the fact that they are taken back, not just by what he says, but by the fact that he is actually saying it. So it's, it's really not just, oh, wow, his words are cool, but it's the fact that he even has the audacity to say what he's saying in the context that he is saying it. So let's just jump in at verse, uh, verse 15. Here we have uh, them marveling at his teaching because it comes from the Father. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So well, what's going on here? Yes, they, they are amazed at the fact that he's teaching, but this, is, this goes more to the core of their religious culture of that day. For someone to stand up at the temple and to speak about and to teach and to proclaim the truth of God in the, in the, the kind of ways that he is must have gotten his education from somewhere. You don't just get up in the Jewish economy and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach now based on the word of God. Those who were part of the, you might want to say, religious establishment had to find themselves in a particular stream with a particular rabbi. In other words, they had to say, you know what, I, this is, this is where, where God's placing me. I'm going to put myself as a disciple under this rabbi. I'm going to listen to this rabbi. And as I am learning and as I'm growing, I'm learning about all the teaching that has taken place before now that is the basis of what I'm saying. So what they're actually saying is this. How does he have the right and the authority to say what he is saying? Where did he get his ordination papers? What school of thought did he grow up with? Okay? They're saying... 
He, all right, he's saying a lot of things. What he's saying is good. But does he even have the right to speak? And does he fit in with our system so that he should be listened to? So let's continue on here and see what Jesus has to say about this. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, who's the his who sent me? All right, let's be God who? God the Father, okay? The Father. If anyone's will is to do God's will, and in that context, talking about God the Father, okay, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, if someone is genuinely desiring to do God's will and is doing God's will, it'll be clear to them that what I'm saying doesn't come from me. It is actually rooted in the Father. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So let's just kind of summarize what Jesus is saying in the two statements. Statement number one, God the Father is the precedent of all that I am saying. Now, why would I use the word precedent? Because for the Jews, when they got together and someone would teach, when they came up with an argument, when they came up with an interpretation, when they came up with an understanding, their habit was not simply to say something that just came to their mind or that was part of their thinking. They would, they would regularly, for purposes of humility and to make sure that they were not being proud, they would cite a rabbi of the past as the basis of their, um, their understanding and their interpretation. Okay? Happens in our legal system, right? There's a precedent based on something that happened in the past. This is the basis of understanding of law. And that law then is this because so-and-so did such-and-such back then, way back. All right? The same is true here in this, this kind of a context. So there was a precedent. There was a, a source of that knowledge or that interpretation that they required. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, God the Father is the precedent of all that I am saying. All right, I am quoting him. I am referencing him. The footnote to what I am saying in this interpretation is not a rabbi out there. It's God the Father. So all that I'm saying is from him. He is the authority behind all that I say. Second thing is this. He's saying, I am seeking the glory of the Father. I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm, I'm speaking what he says, and I'm seeking his glory not my own glory. So what I am saying, ultimately, is trustworthy. But I'm not like you. You say you follow Moses and the law. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? What's the answer? Yes, it's the implied answer. It's a rhetorical question. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Well, now I guess this is where we got to We've got to kind of get the breadth of our understanding of John's gospel and what we've already walked through. Remember last time he was in Jerusalem? Again, the lame man, they were upset with him. Why? Because he healed him on the Sabbath, right? And then there was a discourse. Jesus proved to them with his argument that he is equal with the Father. He de demonstrated that. When they heard that, they wanted to take him and to kill him, right? That's when they conspired. They said, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. We're not tolerating this anymore. So then he went, if you remember, and that's when we went, to, um, went back into Galilee. 
Well, now he's coming back into Jerusalem. So there's been some time, but they're still burning. <laughs> All right? There's still that attitude. They're still desiring to snuff him out. So when he says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law, why do you seek to kill me? He is referencing that heart's desire they have to snuff him out. He's, he's getting at the heart of the issue here. Mere possession of the law does not sanctify you with the Father. One must be obedient to the law, which of course is what? Impossible, unless you're Christ, right? But the evidence that they were disobedient to Moses was the fact that they were out to kill Jesus because he's innocent. They want to murder an innocent man. Okay? That's the argument that he's giving here. They were also, um, well, they were out to kill Jesus. So that, that really ultimately is murder. And, of course, that violates one of the Ten Commandments, right? So, he, I mean, he's, he's indicting them for their attitude and for what they desire to do. You follow Moses? No, you don't. You just want to do what you, own, what you want to do, and you're going to use Moses to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So he moves from, from uh, them being marveled at his words now to being marveled at his work. Look, look at uh, the second point here in the second paragraph in this section. Uh, marvel at his work because it is consistent with the Father's teaching. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, what they're, what they're identifying here is, you know, really, the, the crowd now is judging by appearances. They're listening to what he has to say, and they're like, they're trying to think inside there and say, you, you know, you're nuts, you're mad. Now, later on, they do accuse him of, of having a demon, but this is, this is a little, I think, a little softer in the sense of, you know, you're, you're crazy to think that, that people are actually out to kill you because of that. Jesus gives further evidence then by that of their blindness and shallowness, the fact that they're judging uh, him uh, like uh, simply judging a book by its cover. Notice verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. I did one work and you marvel at it. Now, that's not, I did one work, healed the slain man, and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Is that how they responded? No. They marveled at it in the sense of how in the world could he heal this layman on the Sabbath? How? How dare he? Now, Jesus now is going to argue from the lesser to the greater. And there's going to be a comparison between their, their practice of circumcision on the eighth day and when that eighth day lands on the Sabbath and his healing of this lame man on the Sabbath. That's the point here. So let's read this verse 22 and follow it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, uh, a man's whole body well? So here, here's the argument. They... There, there were two commandments that they were working with here. There was the commandment of uh, circumcision on the eighth day, and there was the commandment uh, that was established for the Sabbath. Well, what happened, though, when that eighth day landed on the Sabbath? Actually, to perform surgery would be what? Be work. So which do we obey? You see the dilemma there. Well, they had come to a conclusion that actually practicing circumcision on the Sabbath 
was a legitimate, I want to say, violation of the Sabbath. It wasn't going to be a violation in their minds. It would be a legitimate thing. It trumps the Sabbath. It's okay to do that. And Jesus is saying, well, if it's okay to do that on the Sabbath, to, to, to perform a small surgical procedure on the Sabbath for the benefit of someone and to keep God's standards, then why is it not okay to heal someone on the Sabbath? You get the picture there. You're not willing to recognize that you are actually breaking the law. And what you're accusing me of is the same thing that you're doing. Now, what's the point of all this? What is Jesus getting at? He's stressing the fact that all he says, that all he claims, that all he does is rooted in his relationship with the Father, the one who sent him. He's the one that gives him the words to say. He's the one that directs him to do the things that he is doing. It all comes from the Father. He is the one that is giving him the authority to teach and to do the things that he is doing. His authority is not in himself. It's from the Father. His authority is not from this earth, but it is from heaven. And friends, there's a, there's a simple application here for us. As we get a right picture and understanding of who Jesus is, um, we also begin to understand the foundation of our faith. What we believe is not something that man comes up with. The Bible is not some man-made document to be twisted and contorted to say whatever we want it to say. Our authority is the triune God who has breathed out his own word and blessed us with knowledge of him as well as knowledge of what he calls us to think and do for his glory. Now, friends, just like Jesus is saying, listen, I am appealing to the Father for everything I'm doing, when we talk with someone about the things of God, when we give advice and we know that it's advice and direction and counsel that's come from the Word, we're not saying, hey, this is, this is, these are my thoughts. We're saying, this is what God's Word says. And so we're speaking with the authority that doesn't come from our own thinking. It comes from the authority of God that has breathed out His Word. Do you understand that? So in the same sense, you know, we're not Jesus, obviously, but the same reality is true that our authority is not in our church, it's not in our system. Our authority goes right back to the source. So that means that we've got to be careful that what we're saying accurately reflects what God has revealed, right? We don't just say, well, we're going to use the Bible to do what we want to do. We want to make sure that we understand the Bible to be exactly what God is saying it's saying so that when we communicate it, that it's true. And that's a lifelong pursuit, is it not? Right? It's so easy simply to say, oh, I'm going to use the Bible. I mean, you know, we, we get that in our culture. We call that the Oprah Winfrey interpretation of Scripture. What, what do I mean by that? Um, you know, the, the truth will set you free. You don't watch Oprah. But, you know, if you do watch Oprah, you'll hear Scripture quoted. But it's misquoted. And it's used in a secular sense. That's my point. All right? So we have this great privilege of, of, of speaking God's truth into the lives of people, but recognizing that it is God's truth that is powerful. Listen, the only reason I stand up here before you is to proclaim God's word. I love what the, the Puritans uh, say about the, the role and function of a pastor. It's so helpful to me. I know you've heard me say it before, but my job is simply to be a mouthpiece for the text. 
Now, certainly God uses personality and, and you know, all the things that he has made me to be, but ultimately when you leave, I don't want you to be leaving saying, wow, you know, what Rod said today. And no, I want you to leave saying, you know, God is incredibly powerful. And, and God spoke through Rod, but it's God that gets the glory. It's God that has the power. He is the source. He is the one that is directing. He is the one that's guiding. You don't want to listen to me. I really don't have much to say. I throw a few things extra in there to maybe help clarify and help explain, but it's, it's your understanding of God that's important. You get that, okay? So we have a precedent to stand on, um, and that is God who's breathed out his word. Now, let's look at the second question here. It's a question about his education. It comes right from the Father. It comes from heaven. Now, there's a question about his origin. question about his origin. And what strikes you when you read this section is the statement, we know, um, as an authoritative reason for their, their, their assessment of what's going on here. They clearly are judging by appearances still and not with right judgment, as Jesus instructed them to do. Verse 20 five and following. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not the man whom they, is this not the man that they seek to kill? So they're listening to him. They're listening to what he has to say. And they're saying, isn't this the guy that they're out to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say, they, that's talking about the Jewish leaders, say nothing um, to him. Can it be that the authorities really know what or that this is the Christ. In other words, they're, they're, they're saying, all right, here's the guy they've been talking about. Not only do they want to kill him, apparently there must have been some religious leaders that were there in the audience, and they're doing nothing, and they're saying, well, what, there must be something to this person then, because otherwise they would go and chase him down, right? That's kind of like the idea. They're, they're trying to understand. They're trying to connect the dots. They're trying to put all of this data together, now, could it be that the religious Jews are, are not telling us something about this person? But then they have that, that cheetah's, cheetah, Cheetos cheetah moment. You know what I'm talking about? Remember the old commercials when he'd come in, he'd go, yeah, 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 whatever, right? And it's like that, it's like that, that moment where you're cleaner, clearing your head and you're getting to the place and you're figuring out what's going on. And what they land on is they land on what they know. Notice what it says, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Oh, what? Here is, here is their faulty understanding of the Messiah. They, they have a basis of understanding that they claim now to be truth. That is the basis of their knowledge. And so they're rattling in their heads saying, no, this can't be the Messiah because we know some things to be true about the Messiah who's going to come. We know that this man, where he comes from. In other words, uh, and, and you can read some of the history books there, the, the view that they had was that the Messiah would be born um, and he would grow up, but no one would know who he is until that moment when he entered in as this one who was going to be the Messiah. So the fact that Oh, that Jesus was from Nazareth. The fact that they know who his parents are and they're from Capernaum, the fact that they know that he's been out doing ministry for two and a half years is evidence to them can't be the Messiah based on what they know. So, okay, we know that they, they, they're not, you know, that the religious Jews are not holding back on us because we know he can't be the Messiah because of these things that are true, right? But it's that we know. 
So, of course, they have no basis for that knowledge, but it was ingrained in them. So notice what Jesus says. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord, or of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. <laughs> now, I know this is a little bit wordy, isn't it? All right? You know, but you don't know. But I know. And I know that you don't know. But you don't know that you don't know, but that's why I'm telling you, you don't know. I mean, that's kind of what's going on here, right? Jesus is saying, you think you know, but you don't know. Yes, you know where I was born. You know who my parents are. You know you've, you've heard about my, my ministry this past couple of years, but you really don't know. Let me tell you something. I know. And I know him who sent me. Now listen, the, the Jews thought that God made himself known to them in the law. But the law, Jesus has already insisted, points to himself that's chapter 5 and verse 46. This is, this is territory that they've already been through. So if the Jews don't really understand who Jesus is, it must be because they really don't know the law. And they really don't know the God who gave them the law, for if they did really know the Father, they would not reject the Son. I, I, I know it's hard to wrap your hands around there. But the argument basically is this. You know what? You're, you're, you're coming to coming to Faulty conclusions based on faulty premises. And so now we're given two responses to Jesus' proclamation. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one said, uh, but no one, sorry, laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So we've, we've looked at what you know. We've looked at the fact that they really don't know. And then there is these two responses, arrest Jesus or believe Jesus. There were those that still wanted to arrest him, still thinking that he's blaspheming. And there are those now that are beginning to contemplate what he's saying. We're not necessarily saying this is conversion belief, but this is, you know, there's, there's stuff that's going on here. There's movement maybe in the right direction. But notice it says here that the people believed him. They said when... The Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They're still kind of caught up in this signs thing, all right? This miracles thing. And friends, there's an important application for us, and we'll put it in a couple of different formats. People always have preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. People always have preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You came into your walk with God with preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You go ask your average person out on the street if they even know who Jesus is. If they do, they have some preconceived ideas. There's, there's some kind of a fashion, some kind of a thinking that is already there. Now, it might be he's simply a good man whom history kept a record of. It might be, you know, he is a great example of what it means to live a life uh, of love toward other people. It might be the fact that, you know, he was a great zealot and a revolu revolutionary, and it could be a number of different things. But these are all ideas that man has come up with a, that, that kind, of, kind of backfill an understanding of who Jesus is, but it's not rooted in Scripture. So we must be honest. 
that may be true about society, but it is also true of us. Many who claim to be Christians have similar preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And sadly, they've never taken the time to discover the Jesus revealed in the pages of God's word. They believe a Christianese form of, the, uh, of Jesus that is full of cliches and religious-sounding ideas. I just want you to think through this. I'm not going to go through a list here of different things, but here's just maybe a short list of a few Christianese, you know, cliches, things that are thrown around in Christian culture. All right? He is love. He cares for the poor. He came to bring peace. Is there anything that I've said that is not true about Jesus? Um, Jesus would never judge, would never condemn or treat people harshly. Now we're getting to some territory where we're going to be in trouble. Now, let me, me, and those are just some things. As I was writing those things down, this is what I thought. You could say the same thing about Gandhi. He would say he loves people. You know who Mahatma Gandhi is, right? Leader in India. Walked around with a sheet, sandals, and a pair of glasses. I'm, you know, I'm, that's what he did. I mean, he, he, he was, it was purposeful to be you know, a figure and, for, and, to, and to draw attention and to communicate his ideology. But he would say that he loves people. He cares for the poor, right? He desires peace. Um, he would condemn judging. Now, these ideologies left alone and not backfilled with... The of Scripture have their source in man's unbelief. I just want to just take these one at a time, and I just want to want to ask this question. All right, let's think about these for a minute. Jesus loves—is that true? Yes. But the question is, what kind of love are we talking about? And what does it mean to say that Jesus loves? Is it a love that overlooks sin? Is it a love that tolerates evil? Is it a love that accepts everyone regardless of their idolatry? And you could. You could say yes, and you could say no, depending on what you meant by all the answers to those questions. In other words, the point is you have to dig a little deeper, right? You have to open the book and begin to read it, what's inside the covers. Does Jesus care for the poor? If you read the Gospels, he's feeding the poor, he's caring for the poor, right? Is Jesus simply a humanitarian looking to get people fed, clothed, and sheltered? What's the answer? No. What kind of poor is Jesus really interested in? Blessed are the poor in dollars. No, poor in spirit. He's concerned about a soul that is bankrupt, that needs salvation. Okay? Does Jesus desire peace? Well, what kind of peace is Jesus talking about? Global peace. World peace. Well, yes. But what do you mean by the word peace? Okay? And, and friends, see, this is, this is where even within Christian culture, these words and these ideas and these statements that, that are so often part of our fabric and our cliches are completely and totally hijacked by the world's thinking and need to be understood by people opening the book of who Christ is and finding out what he actually thinks and who he is and what he came to accomplish. 
Jesus did come to bring world peace, but not the kind of world peace that you're going to have in Lebanon between fighting factions. The kind of peace that he came to provide is peace with God. Not peace with God will result in peace with one another. But you see, it's, we have to dig deeper. We can't settle for this superficial understanding. We have to know deeper. And that means we have to judge with the right judgment. Okay? All right? Does Jesus condemn judging? Well, it all depends on what you mean by judging. You know, the answer is yes and the answer is no, depending on how you define judging. Is Jesus really one who doesn't condemn? Last time I read the book of Revelation, there's some condemning going on, right? The promise of no condemnation is for whom? God's children. Okay? Again, have to dig a little deeper. We have to, to, to go be, you know, beneath the surface and, and, and dig. Will Jesus ever treat people harshly? What's the answer? Yes. And they will deserve it completely. <gasps> well, why would we be surprised? All we need to do is to take time to learn and to grow in our understanding of what God has revealed in his truth. And see, this is the, this is the point. We are so easily satisfied by a superficial understanding of who Jesus is. That's why it's important to recognize where does he get his authority? He gets it from the Father. Where does he come from? He comes from heaven where he is with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? And the Word was God. So this is just rooting us back in there to the beginning of this gospel. So we must not settle, friends, for a cultural Jesus that simply judges him by appearance. We have a book. We have books within that book. We have chapters. We have verses that reveal a true picture of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And I just plead with you, don't settle for superficial Christianity that floats around in human wisdom. Fight and seek instead for a robust Christianity that seeks to know the mind of Christ and is revealed in the Word of God. So, so far we've seen the fact that Jesus is educated by the Father in heaven. We've seen that he originates from heaven, but now we're going to see that Jesus is going to the Father um, who is also in heaven. So this is a question now about destiny. Where is Jesus going to go? Where is he going to go? And that flows out of the conversation of this passage, but there's kind of a storyline that's still going on before we actually get to some of those statements. So we begin reading in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, friends, this is an important little verse of Scripture here. It sets a little bit of the tone of what is going on. The reason I say this is important is because what we have here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together. Have you ever heard the expression, common enemies make strange bedfellows? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, although part of the religious elite of that time, did not always get along. They actually had different views of the Torah. They had different views about what God expected of them. 
The Pharisees tended to be, you might want to say using modern vernacular, they tended to be the Jewish fundamentalists, okay? Very conservative um, and very concerned about keeping the law in its nth degree. The Sadducees tended to be the Jewish liberals, all right? Now, one of the, you know, they disagreed on a lot of things. One of the things they disagreed on was the resurrection, all right? The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see, okay? Now, it's, it's a horrible joke. It's a helpful way, at least for you to know, there is a distinction between these two groups. The chief priests primarily were made up of the Sadducees. So what we have here are these two struggling religious groups within Judaism that often disagreed and fought and struggled to make things happen within their, might want to say, political religious structure, because there was a political religious kind of hierarchy, that is the Sanhedrin. And here, because they have a common enemy, being Jesus, they are uniting together. You get that? And we also find here they send officers to arrest them. So they have not only religious authority, but they also have some, I want to say, military regional authority to send out officers to actually go find him. All right? So this is, this is a context into which now Jesus um, it finds himself. And the irony of the moment is, uh, is that while this is going on, where is Jesus? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you ever watch a Batman movie? You know, here's this, this villain, and they're planning, and they're conspiring, and all this kind of stuff, and you see that. And the next screen, it says, meanwhile, back in Gotham City, right? And this is what's going on. Here they are, conspiring together. They're sending out these, these soldiers. But meanwhile, over in the temple, we find Jesus, all right? Notice what he says. So all this is going on, verse 33. And then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So they're conspiring together, seeking out Jesus, so they will arrest him and ultimately kill him. And Jesus, at that same time, is in the temple, and he's saying, you know what, I'm going to leave here, and where I go, you're not going to find me. In fact, where I go, you can't go. I mean, it's, it's very ironic how John puts all this together and gives us this picture of how God even though man is conspiring against his son, is totally and completely and humorously in control of what's going on. Yeah, he's up there in heaven just saying, you know what, do all you want, but you can't have him. Now, get this. He will, at one point in time, say, now's the time. Now you can arrest him. Now you can take him. But notice what the passage says here. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not find him? We will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. Let me ask you a question. Where is Jesus ultimately going? What does he mean by that? Where going? What does he mean? Well, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to a cross, ultimately going into a grave. He's going then by virtue of the grave up into heaven, back to where he was, the right hand of the Father. That's where he's going. He's also going um, not only to be 
with the Father, but also to prepare a place for us, right? He is also going to rule and to reign. He's also going to finish the divine plan of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. So all these things are all part of what yet is to take place. That's where he's going. It is a journey. It is that mission that he has been sent to accomplish. That's where he's going. But these people are out to get him, and they don't understand what he is saying. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. This is just further evidence further evidence that they can only, that they only can comprehend what they see, that they cannot actually um, come to conclusions that are deeper, that are between the covers of, of the book that they're looking at. Now, I'd like for us to look at a few verses of Scripture because we're talking here about the religious leadership. And even the crowds, these are, these are some things that they should have known, at least in, in Isaiah's, uh, in Isaiah's uh, book. It says here, verse, 50, uh, verse 6 of Chapter 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I mean, Jesus has been saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm here. I'm equal with the Father. I mean, over and over again, he's revealing himself to them, right? And here is Isaiah. And trust me, this is not some obscure little passage that they would not think of. They loved Isaiah. They would have connected this, but they're clouded and they're blinded by their own agendas. And we should also pay attention to what is in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Here it is. Here's the opportunity. It's been presented to you. Here's Christ. Here's the Savior put on display for you to see. And the purpose of that display is so that you will believe. The purpose of that display is so that you will embrace this, this gospel that he has granted and he's gifted to you. And then, of course, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. There's a couple of passages in Hebrews that say the exact same thing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I remember when I was a, a little boy, I remember actually coming out to California for, for vacation this is while I was living in England. And I remember going to church with my family down in L.A. And I remember specifically going to church one, that, that Sunday morning. And it wasn't so much what the pastor was saying. It was actually a choir song that I heard. And it was like I knew that there was, there was a pull. And I fought it and I fought it and I pushed it aside. And then later on in my life, I was in other contexts where it's like I knew that that something was going on, that there was a conviction, there was something happening in my heart. And I very, very impressed that, that there, was, you know, there was some God work going on, although back then I, you know, I didn't know exactly how to explain it, but I resisted it. And you guys probably know what I'm talking about. You sat under the Word of God at certain times before you were God's child. You heard it. You listened, and you, just, you pushed it aside. You pushed it away. You hardened your heart, but God did not give up. He had started something in me. He was still going to pursue me, and he ultimately did. And friends, I just, I just want to ch challenge you and I want to encourage you. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, it's still possible that you may be here and that you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you have hardened your heart even though you've heard his truth time and time again. 
Today is an opportunity. Today is the opportunity for you. Jesus has said in John chapter 6, verse 35 and following, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The question is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him, and are you looking inside the book? Are you looking to find out who he really is as God's word reveals him? Not just the cover, not just the, the things that are drawn on there by the culture or, or even within some, some form of Christianity, but, but do you really know who he is because you have this personal walk with him and you're discovering him and you're examining him and you're, you're just growing in that knowledge of him? You can find him because he is seeking you out. Now, this is all part of John's argument. I'm presenting evidence that's going to lead to belief and ultimately to life. I'd like for us to finish with another passage of Scripture, and that would be the book of Romans. Turn to Romans, and you can have it there, but Romans 11, verse 36. I'm going to actually begin back in verse 33. The book of Romans is a beautiful Beautiful book, the first 11 chapters, just doctrine, just God explaining through the Apostle Paul um, this whole salvation, the beauty of the salvation, how we receive salvation. The first 11 chapters, just doctrine, doctrine, teaching, teaching. And, and then at chapter 12, we have this kind of hinge, and it transitions over to the practical stuff. And so what we're going to look at here is the end of all this doctrinal stuff. And notice how how. God, through the Apostle Paul, ends this doctrinal section. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments and how uh, inscrutable his ways. For who, kno who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now get this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Today, so far in our text, we've looked at where did Jesus come from? Where is he going? What's his destiny? And you might even say, what is his purpose? Why is he here? And if you remember last week, I talked about, you know, all these miracles, all these things happening, they're all pointing in a direction where he is actually here to teach about who he is, about the gospel, about God's plan. Will you come and will you listen? So here are the four questions that man asks. Where did I come from? Here, we're told that God is the originator of all. Well, I came from God. For of him, or from him, and through him. He is the sustainer of all. And to him, he is the judger of all. So the first question is, where did I come from? I came from him. He is the originator. It is God that thought you up. Did you know that? You are his creation. You came from him. What am I doing here? And through him, he is sustaining me. He is the one that is, is working his will through my life. Now get this, as a believer and even as an unbeliever, God works his will through his creation, does he not? Even those that shake their fist at God, he is still working his will through them to accomplish his purposes. Where am I going? I am going 
to him because one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. We will all have to stand before him one day. And then the question is, what is the purpose of life? To him be glory forever. Amen. My friends, hear this. Even Jesus himself portrays himself as the answer to those questions, as the one who is confined by those questions and finds his sourcing in the purpose of the Godhead, and that is also true about us. That he is the one who originates us. He is the one that sustains us. He is the one that ultimately will measure our lives. And our purpose in this life is to give him glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, help us today as we have taken time to look at you, to consider, Lord, whether we settle in our hearts for a surface, superficial understanding and awareness of who you are. And Lord, if that is true about us, Lord, may we confess our sin before you now. And may you give us, Lord, a burning desire to rekindle our pursuit of you. Not to see God's word as simply a, a labor to go through, but, Lord, as an opportunity to know you more. To see you revealed in the pages of your word. To discover not only who you are, but ultimately what you desire of us. And, Lord, we, we, are, we are desperate for you to be our God. And Lord, help us to remove those hindrances, Lord, that may be there for us to actually dig deeper. So Lord, help us not to judge you simply by appearance, by the, the, the few things we might bump into along the way. But Lord, help us to be purposeful, to judge you with the right judgment, Lord, to be, to be diligent, to see who you really are and how you're revealed. May we not settle, Lord, for simply having our Bibles on the shelf or on our nightstand. Lord, may we open up the covers and discover you in a richer and a deeper and a fuller way. And Lord, we will be so better off because, Lord, that's what you've taught us. It's what you've counseled us to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. And Lord, we know that the end result of that, Lord, is that you will prosper us in our walk with you, in our growth with you, in our confidence about living this life for your glory. We ask this in your name.